Good morning, I'm Aubrey. If you have a Bible, turn to our gospel passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, the passage that Drew just read to us. Mark 9, 14 to 29. So in this episode from Jesus' life, we have three lessons. A lesson about evil, a lesson about faith, and a lesson about Jesus. First of all, in this passage, we learn about evil. Look at verse 17. There's a father, and he says to Jesus, I brought my son to you. He's got a spirit that stops him speaking. Whenever it takes hold of him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and goes rigid. I spoke to your disciples about casting it out, but they couldn't. Then in verse 20, notice. They brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And then look at verse 22. The father tells us that this demon even throws the boy into fire or water to kill him. And then notice when Jesus exercises the demon in verse 26... It says the spirit yelled, gave the boy a huge convulsion, and came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people did say, he's dead. When I was a freshman in high school, I I can still see this in my mind. I was standing uh, next to the um, cabinets in our kitchen. And my brother was on the other side of the kitchen, um, standing in the corner of some cabinets, I was a freshman. He was a senior. I was a band elite, you know, a band athlete, sort of like a pentathlete, but only more impressive. And um, my brother was a football player, less impressive, right? And um, he's drinking a glass of orange juice, and all of a sudden, he drops the glass, his arms and muscles all constrict, and he starts making this gagging noise, and his eyes roll back, And I see wide eyes, and he starts kind of convulsing. And he was having some sort of seizure, and it terrified me. I I mean, this had never happened. I'd never seen this. I felt utterly terrified. Can you imagine being the father of, of a child that their whole life, these things happen? Can you imagine how this father felt, this father who would do anything? For his child cannot solve this situation. His child has had a death sentence over his head. Since childhood. And and the father is totally impotent to help his son. Can you imagine? Some of you can. There are things we face in life. That no amount of intelligence or strength can solve. We throw all the money we've got at it, all the discipline we've got at it, all the everything we've got, and we're powerless. There is such a thing as evil. This world we live in is out of joint, and behind the problems of this world is a dark, slippery formless thing called evil. 
a taint. It's real and it's powerful. And what we're seeing here is something more than the sum total of evil impulses and actions that you and I have. There is a force of destruction and malevolence in this world that has a power beyond individual choice and behavior. And Christians have given it the name Satan, the accuser, the evil one. And notice in this passage, the Satan is not equal and opposite to God. Jesus is the stronger one here. But at the same time, Satan, this force, this potent force, is opposed to God's creation and particularly to humans. Evil is real. And the work of evil is to undo you. Isn't that what this father is seeing in his son? He's being undone. And he can't do anything about it, right? Like a beautiful tapestry that's being just undone right in front of your eyes. It's, it's, its integrity is being dissolved. It's, its beauty is being effaced. In this part of Scripture, as we take evil seriously in this passage, it opens up for us three inadequate responses that we could be tempted to when it comes to evil. Number one, one inadequate response to evil is to stick your head in the sand kind of way. You can pretend that evil doesn't really exist or that if it does, it doesn't really matter. That every, every problem is reducible to lack of education, lack of money, lack of choice, lack of options. Look, if people do silly things sometimes, if we just try harder, educate better, open up options more, it'll work out. And you know, this view of evil, it's a luxury for people who live such a charmed life that radical evils never touch them. That they have never felt the slime, the powerlessness of real radical evil. It's about as much use to take this route as it is to sit in your house when it's on fire and to look at your friend and say, whoa, it's getting a little warm in here. I guess I should take my jacket off. Maybe drink a little ice water. A second inadequate response to evil is the opposite of that. It's to wallow in it. To see evil everywhere. You see, once we realize that there is such a thing as radical evil and that it's much more powerful than we are, we can become paranoid. So much of modern art, we've talked about this, is brutalism in the guise of realism. There's an artist in our church that was told when they were doing their, their studies in art at a university, and, and this artist said, I just want to make beautiful things, that was told that was shallow. That that's no longer a legitimate option. See, this is the opposite move. This is a form of caving in to evil of conceding the ground 
It's a way of allowing evil to dominate you. A third inadequate response is self-righteousness. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all those people in the ghetto who aren't as disciplined as I am. If I was raised there, I wouldn't make the choices they're making. If I was raised in that country, I wouldn't sneak into another country. If I was, if I was them, I'm so grateful, Lord, that I'm not like these other people. There's evil in this world, but it's not in me. We are the righteous ones, the holy ones, called to leap on our white chargers and ride off to do the battle against darkness. But hasn't history taught us that self-righteous battles are themselves just another manifestation of evil? Isn't history filled with the evil of self-righteous war? In this passage, Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't adopt any of these three easy, prevalent options. Jesus' way in this passage, when it comes to real evil is to recognize that it is there and it is powerful and to confront it with the reality and power of God's kingdom. And that brings us to the second lesson in this passage of Scripture. We learn about faith. First of all, we learn that faith in Jesus, in this passage, we're shown that it is faith that is the great essential. When it comes to dealing with evil. Look, look, one way to analyze a story in literature is to look for its structure. To kind of dissect it, analyze it. And one of the ways you can analyze this story um, is that verses four, there's four scenes in the story. And verses 14 to 20 are scene one, it's Jesus and the crowd. Verses 21 to 24 is scene 2. It's Jesus and the father of the boy. Now, the father of the boy is in verses 16 to 20, but he's a part of the crowd there. But in verses 21 through 24, he differentiates, and it's simply Jesus and the father. The third scene is verses 25 to 27, and it's Jesus and the demon. And then the fourth scene, if anybody's tracking, verses 28 to 29, is Jesus and who? The disciples. That's right. And what gives unity to all of these characters, there's seven major characters in this story, and what gives unity to all of these characters that move into the center of the field of focus and then back out to the edges while another character comes in, then backs out, what gives unity to all of the characters and the different tensions and different conversations is the theme of faith. Let me show you what I mean. The first scene, verses 14 to 20, climaxes... With Jesus giving a lament over lack of faith. Oh, faithless generation. The second scene climaxes in a confession of unbelieving faith. I believe, help me with my unbelief. The third scene concretely demonstrates faith at work. And the fourth scene relates faith to prayer. So the thing that holds all of these, two things hold all of the scenes together. The character of Jesus and the theme of faith. Now notice in that first scene what really pushes Jesus into an outburst of exasperation. It's in verse 19. He cries out, 
you unbelieving generation. How much longer do I put up with you? How much longer must I put up with you and be with you? What provokes Jesus? Now think about it. We're so accustomed to looking at Jesus as this kind, gentle, compassionate, We're so attuned to shame these days that it's hard for us to imagine Jesus like this. But this is the same Jesus that's filled. And what pushes this button in him? It's that faith matters so much. The lack of it pushes this button. Why? 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 You see, faith is the sole bridge between frail humanity and the kingdom of God. To deliver us from evil. And because it alone is that bridge. Its absence exasperates Jesus. Now what is faith? Well in this story faith is the willingness to take God at his word. It's the willingness to see that God's power can take us beyond the horizon of human possibilities. And so it's critical to see Once you see that, once you see that faith is the great theme of the story, the largest scene in the story is not the exorcism. It's the conversation with the father of the possessed boy. And so what happens is when you notice that, you notice this is not merely a story of the exorcism of a demon and a boy. There are two deliverances in this story. The deliverance of the boy from a demon and the deliverance of the father from a lack of faith. Remember Jesus' exasperation. What is the thing that most exasperates him? The evil? No. The faithlessness. And so when the, boy, when the father of the boy cries out, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. He's responding to Jesus' rebuke. When the, when the father says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief, he's responding to the rebuke Jesus gave the crowd, of which, remember I said in the first scene, the father's a part of the crowd. So the, Jesus had rebuked the father. That's hard for us to think about, isn't it? Rebuking the father of such a profound victim. But faith matters that much. And so Jesus rebukes the father of a faithlessness. And then what we see is that in this long conversation, I mean, think about it. In the narrative, the boy is is convulsing on the ground. And in your heart, if you're watching this, you want Jesus to do what he can do. But Jesus waits. He delays the exorcism to deal with the faith of the father. And then when the father gets it and he sees it and he cries out, help me in my unbelief, you see what's happened. Jesus has identified unbelief as a cultural weakness. And the father's a part of the culture. It's sort of like trying to get Americans to realize they're materialistic. Right? They say whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish, right? The hardest sins to see are the cultural sins. 
The easiest sins to see are the sins in other cultures, in other families. Move away from home for five years, and suddenly your parents' sins get so clear. Distance gives perspective. But how do you see the sins that, are, that you're swimming in? So the father says, I'm trapped. I'm just like everybody else. Earlier, when Jesus named the issue of unbelief, the father knows now that it includes him. And so he begs Jesus to deliver him from the entrenched unbelief of the culture he lives in. Why? Because he's desperate. Because his son is living under a death sentence. And he'll take any solution. Evil, real evil, when it touches us, when we bump up into death and destruction that is too much for us to handle, a scientistic worldview that excludes spiritual realities suddenly becomes insufficient. This is a common phenomenon, right? Uh, Francis Collins, one of the most famous scientists in the world, raised in Stanton, the the head of the National um, Institute of Health. He was an atheist, but he became a Christian. When he was working in the cancer wing of the hospital. And he could no longer explain. His worldview could no longer handle everything he was encountering. This father desperately needed help. His his cry was for the sake of his son. For the sake of this incredible need he was facing. That was beyond his worldview's capacity to solve. And he doesn't want to give in to his doubts. But. He feels, inis- he feels that they are inescapable. He feels the inescapable power of his worldview. There are good lessons for us here because we live in an age that 500 years of accumulation of a worldview that's cut God out of reality. That because we know about epileptic fits, we're no longer open to demons. Not saying that every epileptic fit is a demon, nor that every demon manifests himself that way. But why is it that we as a culture look down on cultures who believe in this and declare them primitive? Could it be they just know more than us? He doesn't want to give in to his doubts. This father's haunting cry, can you identify with it? The torture of self-doubt, faith and despair battling within you. Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus is God? That he really is God? That he really did die for your sins? That he really did rise from the dead? And in doing that, that 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 really is a solution to the world? That that really is the kingdom coming into the world? Are you unable to believe while at the same time you're haunted by a sliver of faith? That's his father. Unbelief, but he's got a sliver. He can't get rid of his belief. It haunts him, this mixture of doubt and hope. Do you notice that in the Father's cry, we learn that doubt does not have to mean stalemate? That if you're like this Father, that's not the end. Crying out to Jesus that you are impaled on the contradiction of belief and unbelief can be the key step in moving forward. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief is an ideal prayer for someone caught in the middle between faith and doubt, living in the shadowy world of half-doubt where you are never sure if 
the way you see things is right or not. And there's something else about faith we learn in this story. If we want to be delivered from evil or doubt, the two deliverances, we have to learn to turn to God in faith through prayer. I mean, there's this oddness about the story. In, in the beginning, Jesus says the problem, the reason the demon can't be dealt with, is a lack of faith. But when his disciples get him alone and ask him, why couldn't we do it? He doesn't say a lack of faith. He says what? Prayer is the issue. So which is it? Is it faith or is it prayer? And, and then you realize not, that's not the only conundrum in the story. Another conundrum is that Jesus says this kind can only come out through prayer. So you go back and read the story and Jesus never prays. But someone prays. Anybody know? Who prays in the story? There's only one prayer. The Father prays. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I've just said that's the great prayer, right? So when you look at this prayer and Jesus says there has to be prayer. And then you go looking for a prayer. There's the Father praying it. And then you put the beginning and the end of the story together. And what we learn is that our battles with darkness and evil and unbelief must occur through prayer. Prayer is the fundamental expression of faith. Your prayer life is the best thermometer of your faith. Prayer is the fundamental expression of faith. And where faith fails, prayer perishes. In this passage, Jesus teaches us to recognize the reality and power of evil and to confront it with the reality and power of God's kingdom through prayer. Finally, third lesson. First, we get a lesson about evil. Second, a lesson about faith. And third, a lesson about Jesus. When you read through Mark's gospel, you notice around this point, things are heating up. Go back to chapter 6 if you have a Bible. Look at verse 7. Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now drop down to verse 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You see, in the, and that's, that goes all over the place. In the beginning, I mean, it's like Midas. Jesus, this stuff happens. The, the Jesus does cool stuff. The disciples do cool stuff. But when you read Mark's gospel, um, sit down and read it in one setting. This is so important. You can read it in 45 minutes, hour and a half, depending on your reading speed. And when you read it fast like that, and you don't go back, and, and you don't pause, and, and, you, and you don't study it, you just kind of get up on the plot and just surf through it. What you notice is that demonic resistance to Jesus heats up. Go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 27. Jesus gives his mission statement. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Mark's gospel is warfare. It is Jesus battling the strong man, 
binding him, plundering his goods. And step by step, every demon exorcism, every healing, every teaching, every invitation of people to come to him is a step by step, rapid gain. The enemy takes. But ever since the second half of chapter 8, war with Satan is approaching its decisive battle. In fact, notice the frame. In literature, a frame is when there's a thing at the beginning of a story that also shows up at the end of a story. And when you have a frame, it's the author's way of coaching you in the right interpretation. He's saying to you, read the story through this lens. Put on these spectacles. Look at the story in this angle. All right? Now look at verse 12. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's talking about the cross. He's telling them, hey guys, you got to get it through your mind that a part of this gaining of enemy territory is going to involve the cross. Now, that's right before the story. Now look right after the story, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So there's a frame around this story pointing to the cross and the resurrection. So when you're reading Mark's gospel, like you read a novel, you're feeling this plot developing. And as you head into the story of the demon-possessed boy, you're thinking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And you're trying to see how it connects up to this story. And when you get out of the story, you're told you're supposed to be thinking death and resurrection. And it, it, you know if you've read this book. That in a few chapters, that's going to happen to Jesus. And suddenly you begin to see connections. You begin to see that this boy was not the only one born under a death sentence in this story. You see, there were two people in the story who were born under a death sentence. You know that Jesus, from his very conception, began to draw down evil Upon himself. And as his life in ministry progressed, it got more and more intense until finally at the cross, all the strands of evil throughout human history, throughout the biblical story, come rushing together. From the demons shrieking at him in the synagogue to the sneering misunderstanding of the power brokers to the frailty and folly of his own friends and followers until finally at the cross, all these powers of evil gather themselves for one last battle, one last attempt to undo Jesus. One last attempt to pull the cosmos and the human race down into the depths. And so on the cross, Jesus himself did what this boy has done. He draws into himself all the darkness, all the evil. He draws down on himself the full weight of evil, the concentrated calamity of the cosmos. And there is God himself hanging on the cross like a salve on the wound of the world, sucking into himself all of the evil. And like this boy, it overruns him. And it kills him. The boy wasn't really dead. But Jesus was. 
It intensified with Jesus. It didn't just swoon him. He didn't just faint from it. It killed him. And then God does for Jesus what God did for the boy. He raised him up. In fact, those words in Mark chapter 9, verse 27, he lifted him and he arose. The two words there, it's really arose twice. But it's two different words for arise. It's the same two words used for Jesus' resurrection in Mark chapter 16. This is resurrection language. Look, if you, if, you, if you read the Bible over and over and over, you can't get to a passage where somebody's dead and then God raises them and not think about the great resurrection that's at the center of all things. You see, as real and powerful as evil is, Jesus is stronger. He is more powerful. They are not equal opponents. And Jesus' death and resurrection is what the death and resurrection of this boy is pointing to. Jesus' victory over evil is not simply out there, a fact of history 2,000 years ago, but it is available to each one of us here and now. And when you, when I, when we turn from idolatry and worship the God revealed on Calvary, we are turning from darkness to light, from the strong man, the devil, to the stronger man. And when we pray, as our Lord taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, from the evil one, we are inhaling the victory of the cross and we are holding the line for one more moment, one more hour, one more day against all the forces of destruction that are trying to overwhelm us and this world. Jesus intends for his followers to recognize not only the reality of evil, but the reality of his victory over it. When you read this story, see the boy, see yourself, see Jesus, see the victory. Now, this is hard. Because I think we instinctively are afraid of seeing ourselves as the boy. We are instinctively afraid of seeing the evil that lurks inside of us. Who wants to do that? Why do we wait until the wheels come off to go to therapy? Why do we, why do we get so busy that we don't have time for the inward journey? Why do we have a thousand ways of letting ourselves off the hook from really owning up to the evil that lurks within. Are you afraid? Are you afraid of the humiliation, the price, the cost of actually believing this is true? These fears are natural. But fearful or not, this is the route to life. Let's pray.